morning, everybody. We are continuing our series on the Minor Prophets. Let me pray, and then we're jumping into Obadiah and Jonah. Put your seatbelts on because we're going fast. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to be able to share in this way. And we pray that um, through looking at these two minor prophets, Obadiah and Jonah, that you might speak to us. You might open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Obadiah, I'm going to try and do this in rapid speed, so we'll wait and see how we go. Um, and if what I... <clears throat> we don't know much about Obadiah, we know his name, we don't know the name of his father, we don't know the name of his family, we don't know if he had a girlfriend, we don't know the sandal size, we know nothing about him. There are 12 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, and we cannot link him to any one of them. Might be, but we don't know. As far as we know, he stands alone, we don't know the date in which he lived, and it turns out that that's not important anyway, because it's the message of Obadiah that is significant for us, part of God's word. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, 21 verses, but it's not the shortest chapter in the Old Testament. Psalm 117 is certainly shorter, but so are 80% of the Psalms are shorter than Nehemiah. He's never quoted in the New Testament, but interestingly, he is quoted, or he quotes, Jeremiah 49. If you look at Jeremiah 49 and Obadiah, you'll find some significant word-for-word -word parallels. One of them is quoting the other. We don't know which way it goes. Um, Obadiah preaches about the country of Edom and he preaches to the country, the nation of Edom. There's a map that will appear and I'd like you to look at that and you can see the location of Edom in the southeast of the Dead Sea. Um, the southern boundary of Edom was in fact the Gulf of Aquaba. A famous town that you may have heard of is Temin, and f which is about eight kilometres east of Petra. And from that came a very famous man, Eliphaz, who's one of Job's friends that we read in the book of Job. Edom had a unique history. They shared a background history with Israel because Esau and Jacob were twin brothers and from Esau comes Edom and from Jacob comes Israel. These two guys that fought in the womb of their mother likewise continued to fight throughout their life but also throughout their nation's histories. For centuries they were in dispute just like in Northern Ireland today or the argument between the Arabs and the Jews and lots of other national conflicts that are going on. Um, the hostility had been there. They hassled one another and significantly whenever Israel was um, invaded then Edom always took the side, always, of those who were invading because they wanted to get rid of their half-brothers, their brothers, their brother nation. Um, the capital of Edom is a place called Petra. I encourage you to look that up and there's some magnificent photos on the internet about that. It's built into Mount Seir. The entrance into the city is through a very narrow pathway. Pathway. If you've seen um, Indiana Jones, then you may have actually seen that pathway entrance. It's very narrow. At some point, you can touch both sides with your hands. Sometimes it opens out into about 15 feet. Went for about two kilometres, and that narrow entrance meant that they were a very secure city. In fact, 12 men could defend against a whole army. And on numerous occasions, that's exactly what happened. The city itself was hewn out of rock, palaces and houses and 
temples and altars were all carved out of the sandstone rock. They were cave dwellers. They lived in the mountains. And their location up high made them likewise smug and secure. They felt proud and very self-sufficient. Well, God's word came to Obadiah to go and preach about and against the city of Edom, the country of Edom. God's word in chapter 1 verse 2 is that he's heard a report where God is summoning the nations to attack and remove Edom from the face of the earth. The reason given in verse 3 is because of the pride of your heart has deceived you. That's the significant verse and the significant attitude in this book. Edom had the attitude of who could bring us down? Who could invade us? Who could um, destroy us? And God says, I heard what you were saying and I can and I will. A bit like the Titanic, the amount of pride and arrogance in the building of that ship and the architect says to the captain that not even God himself could destroy the Titanic. Well, they're dangerous words, aren't they? And we know the story of what happened to the Titanic. So similarly with Edom, this very proud arrogant city, very violent place as well, uh, God was going to remove. God, in fact, says in verse 5, if thieves broke into your place, surely they would leave something. That's what normally happens. They take what's important and leave most things. But God says when thieves break into Edom, you're going to be ransacked. They're going to search every nook and cranny and everything is going to be robbed and removed. You're going to be slaughtered. In verse 18 of the book, we're told that there'll be No survivors. And a couple hundred years later, Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, will testify to exactly that. None are left, none remaining. Why is all this happening? Well, Obadiah tells us in verses 10 to 14, you can see a list of the things. They were violent. They stood aloof. They rejoiced when Israel was invaded. They pillaged. They even stood at the crossroads when people were fleeing from Jerusalem and either arrested them or killed them themselves, and then handed them over to the invading Babylonians. They should not have behaved like that against their brother nation, God says. And that's why he's going to hold them to account. When you come to verse 15, suddenly there is a change. We're not just talking about Edom now, we're now talking about all nations. And God draws a parallel through the prophet of saying that just as Edom has going to be held to account for how they treated Israel, so all nations will be called to account by the way, for the way that they have treated God's people, the Jewish people. Verse 16 talks about how Edom had actually gone into Mount Zion after Israel had been decimated and they celebrated. There was dancing in the streets and drinking wine and all sorts of things. And God says in verse 16, as you drank on my holy hill, so now you will drink the cup of my wrath and it'll be for condemnation. Well, The book of Obadiah is a little book, but it's got a big message for us that's still relevant. The God of Israel is the God of all nations and is the God of all people. He's the one and only God, the true and living God. And he will judge his people and all people, calling them to account. Everything is under his control. He is the one who appoints nations and assigns times and boundaries. He's the one who raises up and removes empires. And all of us are called to face him. Judgment is not God's final word, as we'll see in a moment, but the book emphasizes that God hates pride. 
He hates it when we look down on others. And God notices how we treat others, even our enemies. And Proverbs 24, verses 17 to 18 reminds us, do not gloat when your enemy fails. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. God notices how we treat other people. And he doesn't want us to react like that because it contradicts his heart. We'll return to that theme when we get to the book of Jonah. God hates pride. And the book of Abediah also teaches us that there is a divine principle on how God works in the world. Some people call it karma. Some people call it what goes around, comes around. That's just a human observation on the reality that God himself is working out what you sow is what you'll reap. The way you treat others is what will return upon your head. The wheels of God's providence might turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly small, as one of the Puritans once said. Judgment is not God's final word. God's plan to restore his people will not be frustrated. Verses 17 to the end of the book, verse 21, talks about how Israel will be restored. Edom will be gone and gone forever. But Israel will return to their land. Israel's land will expand and they will rule. God will deliver his people. God will destroy the enemy and God will establish his kingdom. Let's turn to the book of Jonah and see some of these similar truths, but also something more revealing about the God of the Old Testament. Jonah is not really a prophecy. While he's amongst the minor prophets, it's not so much about what he predicted or said or taught. It's really about him as a person. It's about Jonah, the prophet. And then even so, it's what he did and the book emphasises even more so what God is like and what God did. And that's what the significant lesson that we'll learn from Jonah. The book of Jonah falls into two parts, uh, paralleling the two commissions that come. In chapter 1, verse 1, it's the word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And of course, he flees. It's repeated, chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to, Nona, uh, to Jonah a second time. That's the second commission, arise and go to Nineveh. In the first part of the book, chapters 1 and 2, he runs from God and God pursues him, chases him, rescues him. In the second book, he reluctantly obeys, he reluctantly goes to Nineveh, serves God, but he also gives God a serve. And we'll come to that in chapter 4. Take note as you read through the book of Jonah of the questions. The book is full of questions. And they're a key to the meaning of the book. In fact, the book ends with a question which is not answered, which is significant. People have problems with the book of Jonah. Can a man really be swallowed by a large fish and survive? Can a whole pagan city, over a million people, repent and turn to God quickly and so completely? Can a plant grow up overnight and be gone so quickly? Well, people have all sorts of questions and issues. So let's come to Jonah. What sort of a book is it? Well, for me, it's literal history. It's a record of what actually did happen. It's not myth. It's not a fable. It's not an allegory. It really did happen. Why do I say that? Well, Jonah was a real person, a real prophet in space-time history. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. 
And even more importantly, the Lord Jesus himself refers to Jonah and to the Ninevites repenting and turning to God. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 41, the Lord Jesus links the reality, the historical reality of Jonah and Nineveh as a picture of his own death and resurrection. So Jonah is a simple story, a simple narrative with statements recorded of what actually happened. Well, what happened? Most of us are familiar with the story. Jonah is commissioned to go to Nineveh, chapter 1 and following. Nineveh, we are told in chapter 1 and verse 2, that it is a great city, a big city, huge. And it's also a bad city. It's full of wickedness. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's on the Tigris River. And we're told in chapter 3 and verse 3 that it takes three days to go through it. Normally in those days you could work 20 miles in a day. And so 60 miles through, that's a large city, about 100 kilometres. In fact, Nineveh it would appear from archaeological findings that it was four cities that had combined and were enclosed in a wall of, um, on the Tigris River. And these four cities numbered well over a million people. Chapter 4, verse 11 gives us some numbers. The walls of the city were over 30 metres tall. They were five metres wide. The streets were 35 kilometres long. It was a very brutal and violent city. They did terrible things to people. Uh, bodies were piled up in the streets. They would skin people alive and hang them on the wall. And they would mutilate people. They would cut off fingers and hands and feet and ears. and They'd even cut off lips. And then they would pile these up. As you came through the gates of Nineveh, there were piles of skull at the entranceway to put fear into people. It was northeast of Jerusalem. It was about 1,300 kilometres away. And it was in that northeasterly direction. God called Jonah to go there, and Jonah didn't go that way. He went west, southwest. He went down to the place of Joppa, which is on the coast, to get a boat to go to Tarshish, which is at the western end of Spain. He was going as far as he possibly could. And what's significant is that when Jonah gets to Joppa, they just happened to be a ship. They weren't always there, just a coincidence. But it does indicate that when you are disobedient to God, even the devil himself will open the door for you and he'll provide the transport for you to encourage you to disobey God. Jonah pays his fare, goes on board, and he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That does not mean that he thinks, because Jonah is a pretty well-informed man and he knows God and he knows he can't flee from the presence of God because God is everywhere. What it means is he is resigning. I no longer stand in the presence of God to be his servant. I am no longer available to be obedient. I resign. I quit. I'm out of here. That was Jonah's attitude. And Jonah ran away from God, but God pursues him. Verse 4 tells us that the Lord sent a great wind, a violent storm, scared the seasoned sailors, but Jonah wasn't listening. Jonah had gone onto the boat, went down into the bottom of the boat, went down into the bed. He was sound asleep. So God sent a storm. Jonah wasn't listening. So God sent the captain who woke him up, asked him some questions. And in fact, in verse 8, five significant questions. They cast lots, which from their perspective is maybe a bit superstitious. But the book of Proverbs tells us, chapter 16, verse 33, that 
when you cast the lot, when you roll the dice, even the number that comes up is determined by God. Interesting. God is using non-believers to remind Jonah of what his true identity is. And Jonah's experience is because he's disobeying God, running from God, he's got this going down experience. Down. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the bed. Eventually he'll go down into the ocean and down into the fish's belly. When the sailors <clears throat> realise that he is the cause of this storm and their difficulties, their, que their question is, what should we do? Jonah should have said, well, I need to repent and it'll be okay, but he doesn't. He's so determined to be disobedient, he said, I'd rather be dead than preach to the Ninevites. Throw me overboard. Let me drown. Let me die. And then, of course, the storm gets worse and the ship breaks up and they throw cargo overboard and... Jonah's disobedience is actually hurting other people. And then eventually they renege, they throw him overboard. And now God still tries to speak to Jonah. As he sinks down, all the way down to the bottom of the sea, down the bottom of the ocean, God sends a great fish. The Bible says in chapter 1 verse 17 that the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. This is where some people give up and they tell all sorts of stories. And Is it possible for a large fish to swallow a man? Yes, documented lots of times. Is it possible for a large fish to swallow a man for the man to survive? Yeah, it's more difficult. Did Jonah survive? Did he die? Well, I personally think maybe he did. Didn't breathe. But then that would be an, a very great parallel, wouldn't it, for the Lord Jesus? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the, the fish or the whale or whatever it was, a large fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. As Jesus died, so perhaps Jonah died. That's a minor point. You can think that through as well. The issue is not the fish. The issue goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1. If God can bring matter into existence just by speaking, if God can create quadrillion trillion stars and call them all by name then appointing and making a huge fish to swallow a man is not difficult for the Lord not at all he could probably also turn water into wine cure leprosy and blindness and deafness as we know Jesus did if God can cause three men in a furnace to stay alive it's not impossible for the Lord and the Bible says that he did it I believe he did it Jonah is running away from God and he's now as far as he can possibly be. Chapter 2, verse 2, in fact, talks about that he's in the realm of the dead. He's in Sheol. And even there, where he thinks perhaps God's going to be absent, he meets God. God meets up with him and he calls out to God. It took him a while, but eventually he does pray. When we call out to God, God hears us wherever we are. However deep we've gone, however guilty we feel or unworthy we feel, if we turn to God like Jonah did, God will hear us and rescue us. And then God commands the fish, chapter 2, verse 10, to vomit Jonah up onto the beach. It's interesting that all through the book of Jonah, the fish, uh, the wind, the worm, the plant, they're all obedient. Creation obeys the creator. It's only humans who are disobedient. Well, Jonah is vomited up, cleans up, 
chapter 3, the second half of the book, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. There's a whole message there. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God who gives us another opportunity. It's Peter who denies Jesus, and then it's Peter gets recommissioned, John chapter 21. Go to Nineveh, and the Bible says, verse 3, that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah went into it one day, and he started preaching. A very simple message. One city, one message, two lines. In 40 days from now, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. I'm pretty sure he didn't deliver it with conviction, and I'm pretty sure he didn't deliver it with compassion, as we'll see in a moment. But the surprising thing is, this is the miracle. The people of Nineveh believed God. They believed what Jonah was saying, and they responded. They turned to God in the hope of mercy. They put on sackcloth, they fasted, even the king. Everybody in the whole city of Nineveh turned back to God. There's this dramatic turning to him. Before we go on, I want to note this. The sailors believed God, but they saw some dramatic signs. They saw the storm suddenly calm down and they repented and turned to God. But the Ninevites, they only heard the word of God. That's God's Spirit taking the Word of God to make children of God. That's God working through the power of His Word. We're not told, and I don't think Jonah shared his experience of being in the belly of the fish. That's God simply using His Word and people responding to it. Like in Luke 16, 31. If we don't listen to God's Word, then... We are the ones who miss out. We need to continue to expose ourselves to his word, ourselves to his word in our minds and our hearts, that he can transform us into the people he wants us to be. It's a great miracle. 100% of the people of Nineveh repent and turn to God. And Jonah's response to that is in um, chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He was furious. He was very displeased, exceedingly angry. And he's cheesed off. He took himself outside the city, sat on a hill, and was waiting for the 40 days to pass to see if, well, are they going to be destroyed or not? And then God comes to him. And Jonah now explains why he ran away in the first place. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by, by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a God of graciousness and compassion. You're slow to anger and you're abounding in love. You like to have mercy on people. You like to forgive people. I want you to eliminate them. They're terrible people. They're cruel. They don't deserve to be forgiven. Justice has been denied. Ever felt like that? Ever felt like you'd like God to take somebody out? But Jonah, interestingly, knows God's character. He knows what God is like. This is the God of the Old Testament. You know how people often say the God of the New Testament is loving, the God of the Old Testament is cruel and horrible? Well, here is the God of the Old Testament. He was compassionate and gracious and merciful, who loves to forgive. And certainly when we do wrong, we want mercy. But when we are wronged, we want justice. Well, justice is certainly coming. But for the moment... Mercy is available. So God questions Jonah. 
More questions. Do you have a right to be angry? To which Jonah says, too right I do. Justice has been denied. These people are terrible and you should judge them. So then God uses creation again, the sun beating down on Jonah and a plant growing up to give him comfort and then sends a worm to kill it. And eventually Jonah gets very angry even about the plant dying. God speaks to him. But Jonah's not listening. Jonah cares more about his own personal comfort. He's more concerned about the plant than he is about the million people in the city of Nineveh. And the book ends with God asking a question. Should I not be concerned for Nineveh, for the 120,000 infants who don't know their left from their right, as well as all of the animals? And the book ends. Silence. What's the answer? What's your answer? I wonder how Jonah responded. How do you respond? I think there's a clue. Let me share it with you. How do we know the story of Jonah? Well, Jonah tells us. Jonah tells us a story against himself. Jonah answers the question by him writing this book to say that he was wrong, that he ran from God when he shouldn't have, that he should have extended God's truth and mercy to those who don't deserve it, but who absolutely need it. So what does the book of Jonah mean for us? Well, several lessons. You cannot escape God's presence. We know that. You can try to hide like Adam. You can try to run like Jonah, but it doesn't work. Interestingly, Satan will always open a way for us to be disobedient. He'll encourage it. There'll be a boat just ready for you to head off in the wrong direction. Every step away from God is always downhill, as it was for Jonah. Our willfulness, our willfulness, our stubborn defiance of what God wants, not doing it, won't stop God doing what he wants. If God wants Nineveh reached, guess what? It's going to be reached. And God won't force you, but he does have ways of strongly persuading you. Remember how Moses went to Pharaoh when Pharaoh said, no, this is never going to happen? Well, God persuaded him. So God is very skilled in these ways of persuading us to get on track. The book of Proverbs 15.10 says that severe discipline awaits anyone who turns away from the correct path. God has ways of reaching us. And finally, I think the book of Jonah absolutely teaches us that we are to love our enemies. The book of Obadiah teaches exactly the same truth. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, that we are to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, and to pray for those who mistreat you. Is there someone out of our readings of Obadiah and Jonah, is there someone you need to love as your enemy, as your opponent? Then do good to them, bless them. Pray for them because God notices how we treat other people, especially people who mistreat us. The truths of Obadiah and Jonah. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these two books and for these truths. Help us to stop running and to turn and to come to you. Thank you that you love us. Lord, please forgive us. We want to turn to you and choose to follow you and to serve you. What do you want us to do? Could you open our eyes so that we can see the opportunities 
to share the truths of your mercy and your forgiveness to those around us. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.